So how are we on medieval history? You remember um, a series of wars that lasted from the late 11th century to the 13th century? What were they called? The Crusades. Scholars uh, number them differently. It's debatable how many there were, and they weren't always in the Middle East. One of them was mounted in France against the Albigensians. But the Third Crusade, probably the most famous. One of the key protagonists in it was, or antagonist, depends on which side you were on, was Richard de Soar. Who was that? Richard the Hart. Richard the what? The Lionheart. Richard I of England. Son of Henry II and Eleanor of Aquitaine. This was at the end of the 12th century, 1180s, 1190s. France participated in the crusade. It was to recapture Jerusalem. Saladin was in control of Jerusalem. Um, the Germans went to the German emperor and also Richard. He left in 1187. They weren't successful in capturing Jerusalem. Uh, right about the time that Richard got there, Acre fell. It looks like Acre to me. Uh, they took Joppa, and we know about Joppa from Scripture, remember? That's where Peter was, and uh, he raised Tabitha. So they weren't successful, and about 1192, he headed home. And you probably know the Paul Harvey version. You know the rest of the story. What happened? A storm blew them onto the coast of Italy, and he was captured. There had been a lot of internecine fighting between the Germans and the French, controversy between the Germans and the French and the English um, in, the, in the Middle East. The other thing about it is that Richard owned more land in France than the king of France. He was the Duke of Normandy, and also his mother was Eleanor of Aquitaine. And so there was a lot of infighting between Richard and uh, the uh, the German Emperor Henry IV. He was captured by Leopold of Austria and handed over to uh, the German Emperor who held him hostage for two years. There were negotiators, there were mediators that came in and negotiated his release at the phenomenal, outstanding, unbelievable sum of 150,000 marks, which today would be multiple billions of dollars. And so Eleanor, his mother, helped to raise the money and increase the taxation. You know, King John had a bad reputation for being abusive of the people. He was Prince John then, but actually the heavy taxation, a lot of the heavy taxation was in order to raise the money to release Richard. So he was held in captivity for a couple of years, and he was finally released in 1194. The reason that I tell that story is pretty obvious tonight. It's a story of what? Redemption. Redemption. Because in every redeeming incident, there is a captor, there's one that holds one captive, there is a captive, and there is a ransom that has to be paid for the freedom of the person that is in captivity. And in each one of these incidents in history, there's a mediator then that comes in to negotiate then the release of the captive. There's an agreement to pay the debt. And then the paying of the debt is called the ransom. The ransom results in the offer of freedom and the resulting 
uh, release from captivity. And of course, once the ransom's paid, nobody that I know of in history ever refused the freedom that was offered. It's not the same today. There are a lot of people that refuse the freedom that has been purchased by Jesus Christ. Divine redemption of humankind is what we've been talking about for the last over a year. This is actually the 53rd in the series of sermons. Situation was very obvious, very clear. You know, God created humans and he gave them a choice. Some describe that as free will. It depends on what you mean by free will, but he gave them a choice to obey and continue in fellowship with him, Adam and Eve. And of course, they had a choice not to, and we know they sinned. Humans, not just Adam, Humans, not just Eve, disobeyed. They disobeyed first, but since then, not a single human, except one, has obeyed perfectly. What did this do? Well, it offended God's glory and his righteousness and his holiness. And one, there's a metaphysical thing here, too, that we need to remember. Sin cannot come and abide in the presence of holy God forever, in eternity. So it wasn't just that God says, oh, I'm offended by this. It is a metaphysical impossibility for unholiness to exist in the presence of holy God. And so as a result of this, not only were humans alienated from God, separated from his holiness, but also they became captive. Captive to, typically we talk, talk about two things. Captive to what? Sin and the result, death. And of course, the result of sin is death. So what was God's plan? He implemented a plan. I say so, I, do, I don't mean that as a result of that, because the plan was put into place before that. God had a plan. He promised to break the power of sin and death. It required a couple of things. It required a qualified mediator and a qualified redeemer. Qualified mediator to do what? To negotiate the captive's release. And what do we mean by qualified? Well, it required then one who is fully God and also fully man. One who had one foot in heaven and one foot on earth. Somebody that understood God because he is God and one who understood man because he is man. So it required a fully God, fully human mediator to identify with both sides. One of the other qualifications for the mediator was that he had to be perfectly sinless because he had to be able to come and approach God himself to do the mediation. And remember, unholiness and sin cannot come into the presence of holy God. It also required a qualified redeemer. What do we mean by qualified there? Well, you might expect what I'm going to say, anticipated it. He had to be fully, fully God and fully man. Why? Because... The payment, the redemption, the ransom had to be by one that could redeem the holiness of God or could pay the ransom for the violation of the holiness of God. And God is infinite. So it required one that had the infinite capacity to make this payment. But it had to be somebody who was fully human. Why? Because it is man, humans, men and women, that were being restored and set free. So it had to be a human to pay for human sin. And it was qualified, the Redeemer was qualified by being sinless because, of course, the sacrifice had to be perfect. 
completely unblemished, which none of the lambs, none of the goats, none of the bulls, none of the animal sacrifices, no matter how they seem to be unblemished in the Old Testament, ever were perfect. And the gift of redemption in this plan, according to God, was that it would cost what? It would cost us who have been captive to sin and death. It would cost us in terms of what we do to earn it. It would cost us what? Nothing. Nothing. It would be free. And it doesn't mean that we aren't required to do something. But there's nothing that the captive could do and pay to get his or her release. So that, that's basically the plan of redemption as it was set out by God in eternity. And it encompasses both of those. Not only eternity, but time. Time and eternity. A plan for both. In eternity, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. God had a plan, and it was not just a reaction in time. Eternal covenant. You know, there's not a phrase, and we said this at the very beginning of the series, there's not a phrase in Scripture that says the covenant of redemption. But there is reference to the eternal covenant, and it's the same thing. Hebrews 13. In verse number 20, it says, Now the God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep brought him through the blood of the eternal covenant. There it is. So the plan was eternal. It was before time, and it was predestined. We said this two weeks ago. Christ's sacrifice was not only in God's plan. God planned it. The crucifixion was not only in God's plan, but he planned it. He foreknew, he understood it was within his plan for the sacrifice to be made. We're told this in Acts, the second chapter, in Peter's sermon at Pentecost. The predestined plan was that who was to be chosen. We, said, we saw this in Ephesians 1, once again, a couple of weeks ago. God chose his elect from before the foundation of the world in Ephesians 1, 4. And a few verses later, in seven verses later in verse 11, it says, then as a result of that, the inheritance that we have is also eternal. So the plan was thought by God the Father, God the Son. Before time began, it's eternal. And the result also is eternal. We have an inheritance that is set for us, which is everlasting. It is in eternity, too, because it fits God's eternal purpose. Ephesians, the third chapter, when we did Ephesians last year, verse 11. This was in accordance with his eternal purpose, which he carried out. What is that eternal purpose? He carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. So all of this was according to God's plan and purpose in eternity, but it was also accomplished where and when? Here on earth in time in four phases. What were the four phases of that? Now I'm not talking about the prophecy that came before. I'm talking about in Christ. When you look at Christ, what were the four things about Christ that accomplished the, the plan? Well, we celebrate at Christmas the what? The nativity, and that's the beginning of the what? The incarnation. So he became man. God became man, fully God, fully man. And the sacrifice was made at the resurrection. So we have the incarnation of the Son of God. We have the crucifixion of the Son of what? Well, he was the Son of God, but we focus there on, as we said this morning, the Son of Man. And then the resurrection 
of Christ, the Redeemer. And then the glorification, number four, in Acts, the first chapter of the, of the Christ, of the Lord. So it was planned in eternity, it was accomplished in time, but it was progressively, we've seen over the last year, it was progressively revealed. Uh, Noah didn't know all about this. Abraham didn't know all about this. Isaiah didn't know it. But Peter didn't know all about this. It wasn't until ex post facto, after the glorification, the Holy Spirit revealed it then through the, through the apostles. It was hidden for the ages. We're told in 1 Peter 1 that the prophets did not fully understand the whole story. So when Isaiah and Jeremiah prophesied, they don't really understand the whole story, but they're being faithful. Hebrews 11, that roll call of faith. At the end of that roll call of faith, it says, but even these did not see, they did not observe then the final object of their faith. That's incredible. Generation after generation, faithful after faithful, through Hebrews the 11th chapter, they remained faithful without what? Without seeing the object of their faith. We haven't seen the object of our faith personally. Peter, James, and John did. But we have the record. We have their witness. We have their testimony. But the Old, Old Testament saints did not even see the object of their faith. You see, it was hidden for the ages. But it was finally accomplished when, Galatians tells us, at just the what? At just the right time. Under the, under the law. Born of a woman at just the right season. You know, Mark, uh, we talked when we did Mark about five or six years ago. We continued to mention this. that Mark keeps the Messiahship of Jesus Christ pretty secret. And one of the points made in Mark is that it is gradually being revealed. It's a little more hidden in Mark than it is in the other Gospels. But, but you stop and think about why was that the case? Why didn't he just come in all power and glory? Why, why didn't he just, he could have. He didn't have to come as a babe in a manger. He didn't have to come in frail humanity like that. He could have come as a full-grown man. He could have appeared just as easily. He could have ridden into Jerusalem on a stallion at the very beginning, and he could have smitten or smote. What is the, what's the verb? He could have struck down, you know, all of the kings and he could have put the Pharisees in their place by demonstration of powerful miracles that silenced them. Why didn't he? Because God doesn't use force. God doesn't coerce. God doesn't call us to discipleship to his son through fear. And by overwhelming us, now, Jesus performed miracles, of course, to validate that his message was from God and that he was God. But he did not overwhelm and overpower people with fear. He came in love. You see, this would have removed our choice. You know, For example, if he came and he said, okay, from now on, nobody's ever going to die. Well, today, everybody, everybody would be a follower because we know that if we don't believe, we die. Well, that's true. But if all around us are people that are hundreds and hundreds of years old because they believe, you see, so it would have taken away choice. Everybody would obey because out of fear. But now it's been revealed. It was hidden for ages. Colossians, which we're going to be studying after this, 
Probably about the third message will come to this in verse 26 of chapter 1. The mystery which has been hidden for the ages and generations, hidden for ages and generations, has now been manifested to his saints. Peter tells us in his first letter, these things which now have been announced to you, through those who preach to you the gospel according to the Holy Spirit. So that which was hidden has now been revealed, and we have the benefit of that witness, even though we've not seen Christ personally. And the message is what? We saw this two weeks ago in Ephesians 1. In him, verse number 7, Ephesians 1, 7, in him we have redemption. How? Through his blood. For what? The forgiveness of our trespasses according to what? The riches of his grace. That's a pretty good definition of the plan of redemption right there. It was revealed gradually, we saw, in the beginning of our study, through a series of C's, a series of C words, ABC, a series of what? Covenants. One covenant after another. We've got the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. We've got the Old Testament and the New Testament. But within those, we also have covenants. We have promises by God working through administrators of the covenants. And so the first of those was the Adamic covenant, the covenant of Adam. He was a mediator of the first covenant. God gave him the responsibility to be the good steward of his creation and to do what? As long as he obeyed, then he had fellowship with God. So it was based on obedience and fellowship. And he did what? He disobeyed and he introduced sin into the world. The next of those covenants was the covenant of Noah. Some call it the Noahic covenant. He continued the covenant of obedience and fellowship. He saved his family as an administrator of that covenant. He not only saved his family, but he saved humanity. Through his progeny then, they reproduced and humanity was then revived. But what did he do? He too also uncovered his nakedness in the cave. He also was a sinner as well. He was imperfect. Then we have Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant. And of course, the purpose of this covenant was to do what? To make him the father of many nations? No. Through being the father of many nations, his purpose was to do what? To bless all families, to bless all nations. That was the purpose of the covenant, and it was based on what? What justified him before God it was based on faith. And he was faithful. He was prepared to offer Isaac. He didn't have to because God provided the lamb. But also Abraham sinned. He was imperfect. He lied on more than one occasion. And what's behind that? His lack of trust in God to provide protection. Then we have Moses in the Mosaic Covenant there in Exodus, the 19th chapter. Before he gives the law, Israel is formed into a holy nation, a nation to witness to other nations, and they are called to be a nation of priests. That is the purpose of the covenant. Gave the law. This doesn't mean that we then shift from a covenant based on faith to one of works. It's still based on faith, but the demonstration of one's faith was obedience to the law. And what happened to Moses, the mediator of this covenant? He also sinned as well, demonstrated his anger and his defiance in the face of God and the people. And then we have, last of all, the covenant of David, the Davidic covenant. Of course, now we have a king, 
we have a faithless king in Saul. And God found a man who sought his what? Sought his own heart. And then he promised David that he would have an eternal covenant, that there would be one that would sit on his throne forever. And of course, this then provided the pathway to the coming Christ through his lineage. But David, too, was a sinner. And of course, we know about his adultery and his murderous heart. The point of this is, you know, the, the, the covenant in this series of covenant, the strength of any covenant, the strength of any promise, the strength of any agreement like this rests in the faithfulness of the mediator. The one that is responsible for that covenant in human terms, whether it is Adam or Noah or Abraham or Moses or David. And we find that with each one of these, that they were what? They were imperfect mediators. So there was a crying need for a perfect mediator, a faithful redeemer, which we don't find in the Old Testament. So what about our redemption and the redeemer? In the Old Testament, it's really defined as ransom. Uh, the re redemption is defined as deliverance, payment for release. Probably a key text here that defines it best is Psalm 130, verses 7 through 9. O Israel, hope in the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. Indeed, more than the watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is loving kindness. For with the Lord there is mercy. And with him is abundant redemption. Abundant redemption, he will redeem Israel from all its iniquities. And so we find this in the Old Testament. There were many deliverers. There were many deliverers that rescued and freed God's people. Noah from the flood. Joseph from the famine. Moses, another deliverer from captivity. Joshua leads Israel into the promised land to free the land so that it might be for God's people. The judges, when you look at judges in the second chapter, it defines them specifically as many deliverers, if you will, or redeemers of God's people. David, obviously, delivered his people standing before that huge giant Goliath, and he didn't stop all his life. He conquered every nation around Israel that threatened them and freed Israel from their domination. But the problem with these deliverances, of course, is that they were temporary and they were local. They were confined to Israel. They were not uh, spread throughout the rest of the world. There was only one true deliverer and redeemer, and of course, that was and is today who? God Himself. God Himself. Now, I know we speak of Jesus as the Redeemer, but let's think in bigger terms than that, okay? Let's think in Trinitarian terms. God is the Redeemer. The earliest attribution of this is found in Job. Job may have been the actually earliest writing of the Old Testament. Maybe not writing, but account in the Old Testament. In Job 19th chapter, it says, I know that my what? I know that my Redeemer liveth. And he's not talking about Jesus there. Of course, that's how it's going to be expressed later. But he's talking about God. God is Redeemer. Isaiah, time and time again, talks about this Redeemer. And there's a consistent description throughout all of Isaiah's accounts of the Redeemer. Two things. He's described always as Lord, that is Yahweh, and as the Holy One. Sometimes he's the Mighty One. Sometimes he's the King. But he is the Holy One. He is 
the Lord God Almighty. He is the Redeemer. This is the one about whom Job was speaking. There's an important point here from the Old Testament that I think that we need to observe. You know, this idea of Redeemer, and when you think of Jehovah God, yes, high and lifted up, mighty one, king, but also it's a highly relational term. Not just in political sense, like Richard being redeemed <laughs> by the ransom of the Englishman. No, it's a highly relational term that's based on family relationships, family love and devotion. You know, there aren't many places in uh, the Old Testament, there are probably about 20 of them, where God is described as Father explicitly. Now, the implication is there in many, many places where it speaks about Israel being His children. But there are only about 20 explicit references to God as Father. And it is one of those that is used to describe Him as Redeemer. Isaiah 63, 16. You, O Lord, are our Father. You, O Lord, are our Father. Our Redeemer from old is your name. And that's important. So this idea of redemption isn't a, a political term, a social term in, in God's kingdom. It is a family term. It is a relational term. It is a Father who wants to redeem His what? His children. In the New Testament, redemption is also deliverance. It's liberation. It's the payment of a, of a ransom for freedom. And, of course, you know, this leads into the theology of uh, uh, the sacrifice in the uh, New Testament. Uh, different people have different views about Christ's death and how it's described. Different views of the atonement. One of those is the ransom theory of the atonement. If you know anything about it, I don't think it's accurate. Did he pay a ransom? Yes, he did. But in the ransom view of the atonement, medieval theory of the atonement, it is that Christ paid the ransom on the cross to whom? To Satan. You see, Satan has us in captivity, and then Christ then pays the ransom to Satan, and he lets go to capture Jesus, and what happens? Jesus is resurrected. He has a victory, and Satan is deceived. That's not what we mean by ransom here. No. But there is a ransom that is made through Christ. He reveals this idea of ransom in his inaugural message at Nazareth. In Luke, the fourth chapter, remember he quotes Isaiah. His purpose is to come to do what? To free whom? To free the captives. And then later, when James and John are trying to, you know, striving for power in the kingdom... And he tells them, are you able to drink the cup that I'm going to drink and be baptized with the baptism I'm going to be baptized with? You know what he's talking about. Are you going to be able to drink the cup of suffering? And they say, yes, witless, completely clueless about what he's speaking. <laughs> and then he says, don't be like the leaders of the Gentiles. Don't be like the rulers of the Gentiles. They love to lord their authority over people. If you want to be a leader, you must first be a what? A servant. If you want to be first, you must be slave of all. And then he said, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to be a what? A ransom for many. So he describes himself as this kind of ransoming agent. Later it's confirmed by Paul as he writes to Timothy. And he says, he gave himself as a ransom for all. So the ransom then in the New Testament clearly is identified as Christ. He is our redemption. He doesn't just redeem. He is the redemption, we're told in Romans, the third chapter. How does he do it? 
Two weeks ago, Ephesians, the first chapter, we are redeemed through his blood, and then we are sealed in that redemption. And who is it that seals us in that redemption? The Holy Spirit. Redemption is not only Jesus Christ, the person of Jesus Christ. I know that my Redeemer liveth. Job is speaking about that before Christ was ever born. We know that Jesus Christ is the expression of that in human terms. He is the living human and divine Redeemer. But it is not without the power of the Holy Spirit. Redemption is a fully Trinitarian, not only concept, but action. He is our redemption, God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Christ is our mediator as well. You know, earlier there had been imperfect mediators. We talked about that. Uh, One of those was Abraham. Do you remember a story about Abraham interceding? That's what mediation is. He interceded outside the city of what? Sodom. Remember, he intervened and tried to get God not to destroy Sodom, not to destroy Sodom. Brought it down to if you can find only ten righteous people. Moses, he acted as mediator as well, as imperfect as he was. You know, stop and think about this. He, he had to go to Pharaoh and intervene and mediate between God and Pharaoh, didn't he? But you know, sometimes what we miss is this. He also had to be a mediator with his own people. Who did he go to first? He had to go to his own people and convince them that God had sent him. So there's a double mediation there with with Moses. After the golden calf, he says, I'll offer myself in the place of Israel. Just don't destroy Israel. Coming in between God and the people as a mediator. You know, the people then grumbled and grumbled and grumbled. God was going to destroy them. And Moses said, he stepped into the gap. And said, don't destroy them. Take me instead. So the idea of mediation is one who steps in the gap like Moses did. Samuel did the same thing in 1 Samuel, the 7th chapter. He then comes before God and he acts as mediator for the Israelites so that God might then free them from the dominion of the Philistines. He also acted as mediator when the people clamored for a king. What did he do? He acted as the mediator between God and the people. He told the people, God says that you don't want this. And then the people did what? They said, we still want it. And he went back to God and he said, you know, God, they still want a king. So you see, we have mediators like this in the Old Testament, like Abraham and Moses and Samuel, but they were imperfect. Only Jesus became the perfect mediator. Hebrews, the ninth chapter, which we'll look at at the very end, describes him then as the one who has obtained redemption, but not just redemption of any covenant. It is a what? New covenant that in Hebrews the 8th chapter describes as a better covenant than the first covenant. And of course, Paul tells Timothy that his mediation is unique. For there is only what? You know what I'm going to say. One mediator between God and man, and it is the Lord Jesus Christ. So what about this plan of mediation? It was universal. It was for all nations. Where do we see that? Well, as early as Genesis, the 12th chapter, who is the subject then of the 12th chapter? Well, God's the subject. (laughs) But who is he speaking to? Abraham. And he calls him to be a blessing to what? Israel? No. 
Blessing to the Jews? No. Blessing to all nations. Moses, when he gathers the people there then at Mount Sinai, they are called to be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, and the purpose is that they will witness to other nations and draw them to God. Jonah <laughs> didn't want to do it. But he sends Jonah where? He doesn't send them to Bethlehem. He doesn't send them to Capernaum. He sends them to Nineveh. And he didn't want to do it. You see, the message was for all nations. Isaiah, time and time and time and time and time again, five times. In Isaiah, he speaks about the coming Messiah being a light. We talked about it this morning. A light to the what? To the nations. And at the very end of Isaiah, this, this message of the gospel in the Old Testament is that all nations are going to flow into Jerusalem, that all tongues will come to Jerusalem in Isaiah 66. You see, the message of redemption, even in the Old Testament, is universal. Simeon at the temple, he then quotes Isaiah when he holds the babe in his hand, when he holds Jesus. And he speaks about him, and he quotes Isaiah, and he says, this is the light, and he doesn't say the Jews, he says, this is the light of the the Gentiles. It's for all nations. Christ says this in John 3 and John 1. John speaks about it in the prologue. And then, John, and then Jesus validates it. He says, for God so loved what? The Jews. <laughs> God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that some know what? Whosoever believeth shall not perish but have eternal life. So in his own message, he ministered to the Gentiles, to the centurion, to the Syrophoenician woman, to legion. He was not a Jew. This morning we, we heard about it in his call to discipleship in John the 12th chapter. It was not only to the Aramaic-speaking Jews and the Greek-speaking Jews, but also to the Grecians themselves, to the Gentiles. All of the synoptic commissions, Matthew 28, the Great Commission, Mark, the 16th chapter, Mark's commission. Luke, the 24th chapter, and Acts, the first chapter, make it very, very clear that this commission is to go to all nations, beginning in what? Jerusalem, and then Judea, and then Samaria, and then the uttermost parts of the world. The apostolic mission gives evidence to the universality of this redemption. Peter, with whom? Cornelius. Where is that? Where do we find that? Acts, we covered that about a month ago. Well, about six weeks ago in Acts, the 10th chapter. Paul, we quoted it this morning in the ninth chapter of Acts. He is commissioned and called. He tells the prophet then that goes to heal him. He says, I'm commissioning him then as a missionary, basically, an apostle to the Gentiles. And Paul later confirms this at the end of Acts. So the mission of redemption is universal. There's some great redemptive acts that we have talked about that occurred in the Old Testament down to the New Testament responding to specific crises. The first of those crises was the fall in Genesis, the third chapter. And what happened as a result of the fall? What was the redemptive act? It was the proclamation, the first prophecy that we have in the Old Testament, the coming Messiah, that one of the descendants of Eve would do what? Would crush that old serpent's head. Worldwide corruption in Genesis, the sixth chapter, that was the crisis, and God delivered it through destruction of the flood, but what? Through the ark and Noah. The crisis of Babel at Genesis, in Genesis, the 11th chapter, where people were trying to usurp the authority of God through a unified effort in one language, and God did what? He scattered them and then divided them by what? 
languages. And where did we see that reversed? At Pentecost. At Pentecost, all these people with different languages, but there was what? One message spoken by the apostles. So you see how this redemptive theme is connected from Genesis, the uh, 10th chapter, to Acts, the second chapter. Genesis, the 11th chapter, to Acts, the second chapter. The crisis of the famine in Canaan. The mediator, the redeemer, was Joseph, rescued them. And he says at the end, what you, my brothers, intended for evil, God already had a plan. He intended for good. Deliverance, of course, from captivity and return to Canaan. Moses delivers, he sees, uh, God sees the crisis in Exodus 1 through 5, and he leads them out in the Exodus in Exodus, the 20th chapter. But even then, it hasn't finished. The crisis hasn't finished. There was wilderness rebellion. They rebelled with a golden calf, and it required a mediator to stand in between God and them to prevent their destruction. We mentioned that a moment ago. It was Moses. Ten times in the wilderness, they grumbled, and they grumbled, and they grumbled, and finally, the Lord had enough. He said, that's it. I'm going to destroy these people. And he sent among them what? What's this? Poisonous snakes. Bit the people and they died. And what do we hear about this morning? What did he tell Nicodemus? Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the desert, do we see the connection from the Old Testament to the New Testament covenant of redemption? Just as he lifted the serpent up in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up so that whosoever believes might be saved. You see, God had a plan. And we see some of the symbology connected in that plan. They were delivered from their enemies from the Amalekites, from the kingdom, the king of the Amorites, Sion, and the king of Bashan, Og. Time and time and time God delivered them on the way to the promised land. There was pagan resistance in Canaan. And we see at the very beginning of that in Jericho, Rahab then does what? She tumbles out of the window a cord. She unfolds a cord. And it was about the color of Mark's shirt. It was what? It was a scarlet cord. So with the resistance of the pagans in Canaan, we see God acting even then. Another story before we come then to the uh, uh, time of David was Boaz. Boaz steps in and he, he does what? He redeems Ruth as a kinsman redeemer. In the time of the judges, people did as they chose in their own eyes. Five series of rebellions, 12 prophets, each one of them described as deliverers. During the royal crisis, we see that God chooses David as his redeemer, and he gives him an eternal covenant. And then, of course, the crisis of the apostasy and corruption of Judah. He sent them into Babylonian captivity, but he redeemed them out of that. There's some typologies I want to close with, which I, I, I find kind of interesting. You see some of these threads come together to form the scarlet cord. How many trees are important in the Scripture? Three trees. What are they? The tree of life, Genesis 2. What else is in Genesis 2? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And when we come to the New Testament, which tree is the one that reverses the curse? 
the cross. Three trees. Oh, but we're not finished. You come to Revelation 22, and guess what you see again? The tree of what? The tree of life. There are three gardens. The garden of what? Eden. The garden of Gethsemane. And the eternal garden of heaven in the 22nd chapter of Revelation. There's seven rivers. Ah, ooh, wow. We have to search for those, don't we? <laughs> well, the first one's easy. It's Eden. It was bounded by four rivers. The Pishon, the Gihon, and the what? The Tigris and the Euphrates. So four rivers there. The River Jordan where Jesus was baptized. And then where are the other two rivers? There are five of them. Jesus stands at the temple in John the seventh chapter and he says, Whoever is thirsty, come unto me and you will drink. And then you will receive what? Rivers of life. And where's the last river? Revelation 22. Going right down through the center of heaven from the throne of God. There are two high priests. The Levitical high priest who offered the animal sacrifices time and time and time and time again. And trepidatiously, is that a word? Fearfully, he enters the Holy of Holies once a year. That's the high priest. Jesus Christ not only offered the sacrifice, he what? Was the sacrifice. There are two priesthoods. There's the Levitical priesthood that served God through Israel alone in the confines of Israel's temple. The, and we today, folks, have the, what, priesthood of believers, and we are all the temples of God in whom the Holy Spirit habitates. And we offer what? Not animal sacrifices, but Peter tells us we are responsible to lift up spiritual sacrifices to him. There are two holy places. There was the one in Jerusalem, in the temple which has been destroyed, Hebrews tells us that it was a shadow of things to come. But there is the eternal holy place, the heavenly holy place, where Jesus Christ himself entered and before the Father offered his final eternal sacrifice as an atonement for sin. Not just on the cross. He presents the gift of this atonement to the Father in the holy place. There are two signs of the covenant. In the Old Testament it was what? Circumcision. Later accompanied by water baptism by the time of Jesus. And in the New Covenant, we have what? Water baptism. It isn't what saves, but it is a sign that shows the true baptism. And the true baptism that indicates that a person is a follower of Christ, a child of God, the true baptism is what John said. I baptize you with water for repentance, but there is one that comes after me that is more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I cannot untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with what? The Holy Spirit, and Matthew tells us, and with what? With fire. The sacrifice, last two things, the sacrifice. Abel's blood, we are told, cries out for vindication in Hebrews, the 12th chapter. And it tells us that that crying out of Abel's blood was fulfilled by the blood of Jesus Christ. Abraham was, was going to sacrifice Isaac. And it required a lamb, and God provided a lamb. That is a typology. That is a forecast of things to come. Jesus was going to become the lamb of God to satisfy God's need for a sacrifice. In the Mosaic law, on the day of atonement, there was a lamb that was sacrificed, and then they put the sins on the horns of a what? Scapegoat. And then scooted him out of the community. Jesus Christ became the lamb of God, and he also became the scapegoat for our sin. Perpetual sacrifices in the Old Testament were inadequate. But we know from Hebrews that Jesus paid the price. And what's the rest of the phrase? Once 
for all. The redemption of the firstborn in the Old Testament. Payment was made when a male child was born as a ransom for that child. And Moses collected from all of the families in Exodus a ransom for the firstborn male. You see, a payment was made for the firstborn. What we see in the New Testament is that the firstborn, the only begotten Son of God, not only paid the ransom, but He was the ransom. So let me sum it up this way. What has this redemption been about? Hebrews 9, verses 11 through 12, verse 15, and I'll close with this. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, He entered through a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through His own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For this reason, He is the mediator of a new covenant, a better covenant, so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called, He's talking about us, those who have been called in the new covenant may receive the promise of our inheritance our eternal inheritance. And that, my friends, I think, is a summation of the scarlet thread of redemption.